Live from the Secret Garden, this is Derailed Trains of Thought. Welcome to Derail Trains of Thoughts, episode 108. My name is Timothy Beal. My name is Nick Hayden. And uh, hey, Nick, it's good to see you. Yeah, it is good to see you, Tim. <laughs> and we and the podcast put us in a nice spot. It's like the podcast knew we need to be taken out of uh, our dark indoor location into a nice, bright, beautiful vineyard. Well, at least it's partly beautiful. It looks like these kids have been working at it pretty it's hard. Looking, it looks pretty nice. Yeah, so, I like it. Yeah. In case you're wondering, we are social distancing, even yes. though the podcast brought us together. But uh, we are we are six feet apart. Yes, but you know what? Indiana has uh, is lifted its curfew for social gatherings, so yep. we're taking advantage of that so we can bring you some fun, delightful conversation for the creator and the consumer. Yeah. Even with the kids here, there's less than ten, so we're good. Yes, exactly. We have survived stage one of quarantine. Yes, we're now in stage two. Here in Indiana, anyway. In Indiana, yes. So how are the how are the kids holding up? Good. Uh, school will be over in like two weeks. Whatever is, you know, it's not awkward school, but it's it'll be over. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish it would stay warm for more than two days at a time. Mm, but yeah, yeah. but you no, know, we're having we're 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 doing well. Cool, cool. I hope you and folks enjoyed our. Uh, we did, did a sidetrack last month talking about our bookshelves. Yep. I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, it's good. That's, that's the important thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, we don't care about you. <laughs> Not true. Not true at all. But we are glad to be back into kind of our normal routine, at least as, lo- as well as we can. Yeah, it was a nice break, and it's uh, we're raring to go. So, Tim. I think that means it's time for Story School. So I think we may have mentioned before that we have a list of potential topics for Story School, and every now and then we have one that uh, we come up with, but it never quite feels like the right time for it. But apparently it is now the time for nature in stories. That's right. Nature in fiction, I think, is the way you put it on the list. That's probably true. That's neither here nor there. But yeah, we we thought it'd be interesting to talk about how nature as as a setting, as a personality almost yeah almost 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 a character in some stories yeah 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 so where how did you want to start this off well i guess first i guess let's just do a quick definition of nature in the sense that at least obviously you think of trees and plants and stuff but i guess geography to me is part of it you know the rivers and the mountains so i just want to the great outdoors yeah yeah just the land Mm -hmm. i just want to put that out there so you know it's not just hey there's an ivy tree, um, which I will bring up later. But so I, I, I want to make that definition first. And I guess I just wanted it was interesting to me at this time, partly because it's spring and I'm just, oh, trees and blossoms and warmth and sun. And also, I've been reading Lord of the Rings with my kids, which is ah. Fellowship of the Ring. Mm-hmm. And it's hard not to notice nature in that book. <laughs> True. And I was also reading some Greek myths, and those are very, you know, you got all these nymphs and naiads and everything's personified. And it just made me think partly how some authors in some books have a very good sense of nature, and it adds a sort of distinct sense to the book that you don't get in other books. Like, I'll write books, and obviously you're walking through forests and hills and stuff, but I don't feel I have that sort of knack to put you in a piece of land. And to, be, way. and to be fair, some readers don't really want to be put in a piece of land. Like I, I know we've said before that sometimes readers have a hard time reading through descriptions mm-hmm. of rolling landscape and trying to be in the moment. Now, Tolkien does a pretty good job yeah. in Lord of the Rings in certain sequences, but then there may be even other parts that even some Tolkien fans are like, all right, uh, can we just kind of get back to the story, please? So I guess I kind of want to talk about what does it add? Obviously, it might add things that you don't want, but you know what? What is the the benefit to the reader having these uh, someone who can describe nature well? I mean, poet. Some poets are very good at it. Tolkien. We can start with him because he's probably more known. I had this interesting kind of thought experiment in my head. I compared Lord of the Rings in my head to Wheel of Time, both epic fantasies. Okay. When you run around Middle Earth, you can imagine being in these various places. 
you know, on the river Anduin and in the fields of Rohan or all these, you know, you feel like real places, or like even, the land's a character. Or even the minds of Moria. Moria. I mean, there's just a mm-hmm. sense of reality, of placeness. Uh-huh. Wheel of Time, fascinating world, but I would say I feel m- more like Wheel of Time is you feel the culture is real. The yeah, people. Just from the bits I've gleaned from you talking about it yeah. over the years, I, I feel like I've heard a lot more about the civilizations yes. of Wheel of Time than anything about what the the landscape is like. And again, there's there's interesting lands and stuff, but it just is not a focus. And I just thought it was an interesting comparison in my head saying, okay, Wheel of Time, Lord of the Rings, both epic fantasies, but Tolkien has a, the land is a thing mm. in that. You know, in Miyazaki, the place is a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we recently, well, I don't know if you finished yet, but we I read Watership Down. I'm about a little over halfway through Watership the Down. The land now. is a thing. Yeah, they talk a lot about, well, because they're rabbits. So. Exactly, and it makes sense. So what do you think, Tim, nature, that sort of deeper sense of nature in some books adds? Well, it's interesting. That I think different authors can even give off different impressions of, like, again, because Watership Down is from the perspective of rabbits, so they they seem to have a pretty good understanding, or at least they <laughs> a rabbity understanding, a rabbity understanding <laughs> of like the lay of the land and mm-hmm. and going around hill and dale, and and the author even includes like details about what kinds of grass and plants they're yeah, I know they're, they're eating or or running past or hiding in or, or what have you. Which is similar but different to, you know, Tolkien's perspective is it's the the mountains, the golden leaves of Lothlorien. Yeah. It's more of a human or or an elf's perspective That's as true. opposed to being down on the ground of, of, of the rabbit's perspective. I guess Lord of the Rings has more of a history, you know, a sense of... Yeah, like grandeur. The, the there's landmarks like the river Anduin mm-hmm. and how it flowed, and um, even in the Silmarillion, there's talks about like all these lands that aren't even around. And by the time um, Lord of the Rings comes, um, you um, know they'll come to a rock and like generations ago this happened here, and they come to a river and, like this used to be the you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think in both cases, what it adds is a sense of a very distinct placehood. I, I know. I mean, it, like, it's not quite a character in the sense that like it has a personality, but it does it kind of adds a whole like Watership Down without the details of plants would be a plot. Hmm. Lord of the Rings without the sense of land would be a plot, but it's in some ways almost like stepping into scenes of a of reality, not real reality. I think, or more so. I don't know. Like, it doesn't feel so. Again, that's the downside. It doesn't feel so plottish. Uh huh. But the upside, I guess, is it has that a more of a sense of space, maybe, than some. I don't know. I'm I'm assuming here. It could be. I mean, some of what we're talking about is just setting in general. Like I've been listening through the Reckoner series, mm-hmm. and those the the cities that I mean, they're generally in cities in those books. Yeah, but they each have their own kind of feel, a characteristic of place. Like Babylar feels yeah. very different than New New Cago. Well, there's a question then. Are there, and I'm not, I'm, I probably don't think I've read them, are there people who write cityscapes as well as people who write landscapes? Hmm. I mean, I would imagine, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm struggling to think. It's not the sort of thing that you and I read yeah, exactly. a lot. And it, it probably struck me a lot with the Reckoners in part because of that. And here's my second question. I would make the argument that nature done well adds a sense of either somewhere between peace and longing. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if as deep descriptions of cityscapes would do the same thing, or if there's something innately creative about nature because it's, I mean, in real life, they talk about the green deficit, that people don't have enough nature, and that even having like, even having a park in your neighborhood mm-hmm. will lower crime. Mm, that's true. You know, and lower heart attacks and all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, like just yeah. the presence of green does all kinds of health benefits, even if you don't walk in it. Uh-huh. And I wonder, you know, is there a similar thing in fiction? I could see that. I mean, because, yeah, the cityscapes are, in a way, kind of an outgrowth of the civilization that you're telling the story about. Yeah. Like, Babylon is a really un- interesting scenario, yeah. because, but it's, like, it's intrinsically tied to the epics, the super-powered beings mm-hmm. that live there, why the city turns out that way. Whereas being out in the, the country, out in nature... Yeah, it's less about any particular 
individual or human civilization. It's, well, it's about being in nature. It's yeah. about being in God's great outdoors. Yeah. And I wonder, now that we've talked in cities and I you mentioned geography, I wonder if you could make the argument, and I did not think of this beforehand, that cities are a type of geography. Mm-hmm. And you could, you could, I mean, we've said nature, but is it a type of nature? I mean, if you describe it in a certain sense... Uh, I mean, I Moria, we, we said Moria was, and that's kind of a well, civilization. True. Rivendell. Although it was abandoned at the time. Yeah. I guess we have to, I think it's, we have to like distinguish our terms though again. Yeah. I could say the city, Rivendell, those are still locations. Those are environments mm-hmm. in the story. Whereas nature itself, I think we're talking, the word is more specific to living in wild yeah. nature. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, I was just curious. But it's a good question. And, and there's a certain amount of beauty, I think, when nature's done well. Like, even rabbit beauty is beautiful. You know, they see, mention the, the sun. There's that, that sense of closeness to the land. It, you know, it was interesting because before I read Watership Down, I was reading the journals of Lewis and Clark, hmm. which are a lot of, here's a mountain, and here's, a, here's where the river, and then we went down this river, and we found some snakes. And, I mean, just journals about land, which is kind of fascinating just get the sense of exploring the West, which is why I was reading anyways, be that story fascinated me. But it's not that far removed from rabbits exploring a river, a, a creek or... Yeah. A creek which seems, seems like a river because yeah. you're a rabbit. Yeah. yeah. Here's another question. I almost have more questions than answers tonight. <laughs> sure. Greek mythology. Okay. A lot of these gods were based off, you know, the waves, the wind, the mm. lightning, the flowers, the... You know, they they name things. It's interesting to think about because, like, I don't always think about Greek gods being connected that strongly to things because I know that's true with a lot of divinities mm-hmm. in different religions and things yeah. like that. So it's when I think of Greek gods, I think more like the the pantheon and these oh. important stories and Hades and the underworld and things like that. But that's yeah. I, and so I'm curious, and this is more just my my personal interest in how things have changed from like more modern society where we're much more urbanized. Do we understand in the same way that that sort of deep connection to nature? In the, I mean, I, I'm sure some people do. I'm, I mean, if you live in Wyoming, you know, <laughs> and my, par- my grandparents lived in Wyoming. There's a different sense out there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and there, there's definitely people that that's their main hobby. Yeah. Like being outdoors, hike the hikers, the campers. Like, like I always feel bad as a from a creative point of view. I wish I could describe plants and and landscapes better. Like. I don't know how to describe mountains. Like, mm. I am amazed whenever someone can do it well because I, like, there is a cliff and I think I know what, what that looks like. Um, <laughs> like, trying to draw about ravines and, and all that stuff, it's like yeah. hard to do well. And the mm. people who do it well, you suddenly you're living in a world. Yeah. In a world. <laughs> it, it is an interesting point because. I don't know when I read that kind of stuff, like say in a Louis L'Amour book, yeah. who talks about like and the West, old to, westerns are good at that. Yeah, yeah they try to like talk about a canyon that they were exploring or something. It's like they have a understanding of like the flow of the landscape mm-hmm. that I have a hard time emulating because it's like it's a hill you go up and or you go down it. <laughs> well, and the thing is, we at, here in Indiana we don't have a lot of experience in long distances. Mm. That's just not. I mean, you're out in some wilderness. You can see for a way. You get a sense of the land in a different way, probably. Well, and in the modern, yeah, that's true. And in the modern era, when we have cars that take us anywhere, yeah, like you don't even have to be a city person. Like driving between towns, thirty miles apart, is a lot faster sometimes than driving thirty miles across the city. Yeah, because there's a lot more traffic and stuff. But at the same time. You're somewhat connected to it because you can see the landscape go by in your window, but it's it's even less connected than if you're actually walking through it. Yeah. I, well, I remember having this experience one time walking home from work, which is like a couple miles. I decided to walk home. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a beautiful evening, sun going down, and you just notice things that you don't when you're driving past it. Mm-hmm. You know, just a sense of, it's interesting, like some, when my kids, well, yeah, I still do it, but even especially when the kids are smaller, we'd walk around the block, our little block, and we stop at every, you know, we stop to pick up leaves or look at this flower in the side, you know, suddenly all these things you don't even think about, you notice. And maybe there's a certain amount of, that the people who write nature well can explain those things we tend to not look at. Hmm. That's interesting. It really does take, and maybe this is part of the problem, I wonder if to write nature well, 
you really need to have a poet's perspective of things. I think it helps, and I think you have to be. I think you have to be one of those people who just you love the land, and that love comes out. Mm-hmm. Even reading um, Hound of the Baskervilles, the sense of the moors. Oh yeah, just comes. You know, again, some of that's atmosphere, right? Which we've talked about in different podcast, mm-hmm. but just that that I know nothing. I've never been on moor, uh-huh. but man. The English are on them all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow, yeah, Doyle conveyed that pretty well, even without you actually being there. You're transported in a different way, I think. People can put you in that spot, even when you've not been in a spot like that. Like, you've Mm -hmm. only known pictures or analogies. Or maybe it's close enough to something you have experienced. Maybe you've not been in a moor, but you've been outside on a really foggy day. Yeah. So you can kind of, like... Yeah, using pictures you've seen and your own experiences, you kind of patch these things together, which I I suppose is one reason why Lewis can write things like Paralandra on a completely different planet, and we can kind of picture, oh, I've I've never been on a island that floated like a raft but i've been i've been out in a boat before so yeah. i can kind of picture what this floating island might feel like if mm-hmm. the, with the landscape constantly changing underneath the water but like you've said too that you know if someone who does a lot of nature discussion in their books some people are like oh boy let's get over this let's get and it does slow things down mm-hmm. which is the whole point of nature in some ways <laughs> <laughs> i suppose that's true but i mean that's an interesting thing to develop then because is it a distraction from... I mean, I guess in Lord of the Rings, part mm. of the purpose of the landscapes is to show the importance of the world that they're trying to save. Mm-hmm. If it was just a straight line, get from point A to point B, from Shire to Mordor, yeah. without really exploring anything between, there yeah. wouldn't be nearly as much stakes for what Middle Earth is all about. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, Tolkien like, keeps track of the the changes of the moon. And I mean, it's it's impressive. It's... Uh-huh. Has a lot of verisimilitude. But well, we fancy. we keep going back to the watership down because it's it's fresh. But yeah. I guess from what I understand, a lot of those locations are actual locations. I, th- in, I think he just lived there. He lived there, so he he knew like every hill and dale. It seemed well, like practically a- near the end. Half spoiler: Doctor Adams shows up as a character. No, the author. I think it's him. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Um, so it's probably just he just lived around there, and he just um, I mean, and that's cool, and especially like you know. Ivy Tree, the Ivy Tree, which you haven't read. Not all. Oh, did you start? You did start it. I've started it like twice. <laughs> but it is, I mean, there's a lot of description of the plants and stuff of this farm. Okay. But it also plays a role because this farm is the place that they're fighting over the inheritance and there's a sense of history there. I mean, when you describe nature well, you have, I think you can, you can describe beauty. I think you can get that sense of longing, but I think you also can get this sense of this is a place we want to care about. Mm-hmm. We've been talking a lot about books, but I think visual mediums can convey yes. this on a different level for certain. It's less poetic at times. I mean, movies like to focus on the vistas, the grand yeah. landscapes. Yeah. Um, in uh, The Searchers, we saw yes. Monument Valley. Yes. Which I think is the name of it. Forgive me if I'm wrong. <laughs> um Miyazaki, though, handles does this on a completely different vibe. Yeah. In his movies, nature feels like the mysterious thing that whenever like when you go outside or like if you've been on a long hike and you come across a vista that you can only get to by walking for 10 miles yeah that's a completely different vibe or like or even not even just a vista you know if you're surrounded by wild flowers mm-hmm. and branches and things like that it's a completely different wild sensibility that it's a little harder to get on in a movie because you're either constantly on the go or you're like looking out over a beautiful landscape. Yeah. But Miyazaki somehow, because he takes this kind of quieter, more pastoral approach mm-hmm. a lot of times with nature, you kind of get that that sense. Like you, It's not quite like being outdoors, but it's evocative of being outdoors. Yes. I mean, some, some, of, the, some of the movies are almost largely about the power of nature. Princess Mononoke being a key, an yeah. obvious example there. Or lighter. I mean, Neighbor Tortoro is very much like just the mystery of moving into this house and being surrounded. I mean, the, they spend all their time just basically wandering around uh-huh. outside. <laughs> and, you know, just the fact, like, rain is just a th- is an event. Mm. <laughs> That's um, true. And there's something, there's something, Miyazaki does both the more epic, you know, the, the Princess Monoke, and mm. the more quiet, like, let's just take a moment to soak in normal mm. nature. 
Sophie sitting on the side of a lake, just in, enjoying being still for a little bit. In Howl's Moving Castle, which is a great scene. Mm-hmm. And I think we all want to be, and again, most people get spring fever. They don't want to just be outside for any reason or sit on the porch or look at, or go to the beach and just watch the waves. And I think we all want to be. You don't have to be in quarantine to get cabin fever. <laughs> exactly. And, and I think there is something about nature in real life that brings us out of ourselves hmm. and is spiritual is too strong of a word, I think, because you misunderstood. But add something creatively to the world mm-hmm. that, that, that man-made structures don't. Yeah. And I think good writers who are good at that, I'm not saying, I don't think all books need this, but some books, if it's very well to have that sense of grandeur, space, rootedness, you know, if you're talking more rabbits, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> that is different than you get if it's just like, oh, and it was a cave and it was a, mm-hmm. where it's beyond atmospheric, where it's kind of gone a deeper level. Mm. Yeah, sometimes it is about the the exploring aspect of it. Yeah, that helps too. Like video games are good at that with mm-hmm. exploring. Like I'm getting near the end of uh, Shadow of the Colossus, which I've been playing. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I know has been recommended to me in the past. And one of the big things of that is you're setting out to go find a Colossus, but you don't know exactly where it is. You kind of have to find your way. So you often start off in this this big grassland area, but every now and then, like, it takes you through this really serene forest that you didn't expect, mm-hmm. or you get to look out over this canyon that's filled with waterfalls, and, every like, when you're not expecting it, because it's, it's just over the next rise, and suddenly you're there playing as a character, it kind of takes your breath away. I mean, yeah. which is fun. I mean, that's, it's not the first game to, to do that sort of thing, at least not the first game I've played. Final Fantasy games sometimes are about the exploring yep. these fantastic well, worlds. Well, you showed me Journey. Oh, had yeah. that sort of exploratory, just like wonder sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's parts of different Myst games that have that. You're just wandering around this land and you're like, you don't even care there's no, pu- you know, it's not even about the puzzles sometimes. It's just like, this is just new. I mean, this is why we went out west. You know, uh-huh. just to see things. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that's part of it, too. Just that sense of what is there. Yeah, what is out there? Take me into something new and grand and beyond myself. That's why I've always been that's, I've always been fascinated with Lewis and Clark going out west, doing all the exploring. I mean, how cool. Just, <laughs> yeah, we're just going to go out here and it's something no civilized man has ever seen. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty wild. So, and that's why, you know, Luz, Luz Lamore does some good books out west doing that sort of stuff mm-hmm. the sackets and stuff so yeah i don't know i think right now i'm re- i'm trying to write something there's a lot of traveling in it which is not my strong suit so it's really hard for me but like <laughs> it's something that i think is important for this book so i mean that's been why it's been on my mind too i also want to communicate the sense of land and, um, and place space and, and place and it's it's not my first thing some people can do it much i i don't quite have the right Poets, like, I can appreciate it, but it's hard for me to communicate it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time that, that strikes me, that's how you did it decently well, and maybe it was because the characters are talking about a grander mythology to go along with it. That there's, uh, It seems like there's a moment or two in Unremarkable Squire where Obed and Violet are looking out over the, the stars and talking about the possibilities of... Uh, I think Obed reiterates some myth that he had heard about, and you know, it's kind of like one of these, like, what is our place in this yeah. this world sort of moments. See, I think I've always had this desire to to communicate these big because I think personally, I you know, I enjoy. I almost wish I could go out west more. I wish I could. I spent a lot of my young, you know, teenage years wandering the forest, my parents' forest. Sometimes I want to communicate the sort of what it's like to do that. But I'm not good with the words to do it. So I'm glad that apparently works sometimes. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, I don't know, there's, some, there's certain types of meaning that seem most appropriate in nature. I do think it is a challenge in some ways for our generation, whether because of modernity or whether we just, it's one of those things as a kid. I, I know for me, sometimes as a kid, I just saw that as, oh, that's kind of my dad's thing. And yeah. I'm, I'm more into this other stuff. But then, And then later, like, I remember, I think this was when I was in LA, ruminating to one of my uh, roommates out there. I think we were we were going for a walk in a nearby park and be, being like, you know, you and I, we we grew up, we really wanted to learn the names of Star Wars characters, all the the minor characters yeah. and stuff. But our dads were like learning the names of plants and and uh, insects and 
things that I guess are kind of useful, more useful than knowing <laughs> than knowing who Seal uh, Bibble is. <laughs> I actually don't even remember that one. Seal Bibble's the guy who says you can only mean one thing: invasion. <laughs> Okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Oh, wait, wait. Okay. That's, yes, episode one, isn't it? Yeah. yeah he's also in two, and in that time, he's also panicky. I mean, he's consistent. <laughs> he's consistently panicky. Yeah. I thought I thought you were going to say someone like uh, Salacious Crumb. Salacious Crumb. Salacious yeah. Crumb. Yeah, yeah. The guy from Jabba's Or um, <laughs> Figurin Dan and the Model Nodes. <laughs> See, exactly. I know who those are, but uh, most of the, the grass types that they name in, in Watership Down, I have no I, idea. And when re- reading Watership Down, it made me kind of sad I didn't know them. And I think, because I'm at the eight, okay, I'm older than I was. <laughs> and I think I, I wish I had known more of that, or uh, that I knew it now. Like, sometimes right now I will go around and find mu- mushrooms now. She, my daughter's probably the most nature of my kids. Mm-hmm. Feel couldn't care less most times. <laughs> and Mercy... I don't know yet. Um, and I guess that there is something that, that maybe not just generation, may just be personality. Because I know my sister, Danielle, she fell in love with raising chickens. Mm-hmm. We grew up we grew up on a farm, and I guess she had always grown up on a farm, whereas I kind of moved into one. Mm. So maybe she just got interested at a, at a younger level age yeah, than I did. Like, yeah, because Serenity loves animals like... <laughs> I'd never have a pet myself if I didn't, if my kids didn't want one. Uh-huh. It's just I, n- not interesting to me. But I always wish I knew, like, could tell trees by their bark and know, you know, which plants you could eat and, you know, that sort of stuff. I mean, I know you can like zucchini and stuff, but, you know, just <laughs> foraging. Um, and I think it's super cool people that do. And I think, you know, maybe when I, you know, get older, even, maybe I'll just putter around and do that sort of thing. My grandma was very, she knew how, like what berries to dye any of her wool. I mean, she was like oh, really? super. Yeah, she could do all kinds of stuff like oh, that. Wow. And my sister got some of that. My, my sister Summer, she she can make poultices and stuff out of the. I mean, she's like it's like yeah. all this old like wives' tale stuff she knows how to do. <laughs> I knew she was super crafty. But yeah, she knows all these like oh this herb and you you smash it up and you put it in your you know back of your mouth and it fixes the you know that sort of stuff. <laughs> Anyways, so I think some stories communicate that sort of love that some people have and i think it's a special thing when you can do it well and not bore people to death <laughs> yeah yeah i'll be curious to see how your new story that apparently you're working on as opposed yeah. to finishing string fred <clears throat> uh, uh, yes 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 <laughs> moving on uh, i'll be curious to see how it incorporates that because it's it's useful to understand our strengths and weaknesses i think as a creative yeah. as a storyteller or, or what have you and sometimes you want to lean into your strengths, but other times it might be good to try to shore up your weaknesses. <laughs> well, see, yeah. Yeah. And just, it, it fits the story is the problem. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> when, if you got a good story that, that works, then well, that's what we're hoping. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of forces you to do it if you know, like, this is what the story needs. Yeah. So got to try it. Here we go. Yep. So, so all right. Yeah. You know, maybe that you can take that as a challenge next time you come across, dear listener, next time you come across uh, some landscape description that you want to roll your eyes at. It's like, well, Let's see. Maybe the author does it pretty poorly, but maybe he maybe he can uh, pull something interesting out yeah. of it. Yeah, sounds good. With that said, let's move on into our soundtrack. For my soundtrack today, I've got something written by the one and only DJ Pretzel. Ooh, is this... I almost picked this one, I think. Is this what the ocean taught the forest? <laughs> yes! How did you do that? Because I was going to pick this one, then it changed my mind. Oh, good grief. <laughs> ah, am I that predictable, or do we think that we no, think along just, the same it's lines? It's such a good song. It is a good song. DJ Pretzel is the founder of Overclocked Remix, or at least one of the founders. Is he the founder? I think he's the founder. The founder. Okay, so, but this is one of his own remixes from, remix from The Secret of Mana, and you already heard the name, because <laughs> Nick gave it away, but it's... <laughs> It's called What the Ocean Taught the Forest. And DJ Presley did say in his write-up that it is kind of, he, he does kind of see it as his celebration of exploration of nature. And, and you can kind of see it. And it, it's nice because it has, it has a lot of different, like, uh, nature modes in it. It's, and it's good vibe. Yeah. yeah, good vibe. It's playful at times. It's very peaceful at other times. But anyway, I hope you enjoy. Thank you. 
And we're back. That was nice. Yes, it's it's a it's a nice little uh, musical journey. Yeah, he he says it was partly inspired by his seventy fifth watching of Moana hmm. as with his a, daughter. With his daughter, yeah. <laughs> I'm guessing as a parent, you can identify with that. Yes, I actually will not watch that one that often, but <laughs> but I, you have for seen a while. certain things, certain things quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay, for our next segment, it is time for it's came from the interwebs. Okay, so this time uh, Nick has got something to show me, something bit of uh, creativity that he has found in the wilds of the internet. Yeah, it's just just a it's a little short thing, and I thought it applied to our talk of nature. So, Tim, type in plants.fm. Plants.fm. This makes me think this we're going to a radio station here. Yes. Do basically pla- do plants make a lot of noise? Plants FM is an online streaming service delivering live music generated by plants. Yes. So, uh, <laughs> okay, so go down a little bit. Let's listen to a little bit of this plant music. Okay, this is a live stream of, what did it say, a snake plant? Yes. Now, this is going to be tricky. This is a live stream. This may sound different when I actually put it in the in oh, post. It'll probably still be. So we won't comment directly on what we're hearing too much. But it, it's pretty it's pretty calm and um, chill, and I think it stays that way. From it's my pretty much always kind of like this. So apparently, there's this product called Plant Wave. It used to be called MIDI Sprout or okay. Sprout MIDI, uh-huh. where you attach things to your plants, and then you listen to the bioelectric wave. Okay, pulses yeah. of the plant turning into music. Yeah, I'm looking at a picture here. It's like they got little two clips attached to leaves of a plant, like a potted plant. Yes, yes. So, yeah, like you can't find a lot of them on YouTube if you type like, in like... It's like you're trying to jumpstart a plant. And apparently, I saw a video, like if you clap, like the music changes, like the plant interacts to... Oh, really? To stimuli and stuff. Huh. Because they, they, I think scientists have... Now, like, I'm not like, oh, yes, they talk to each other and they feel... But I think they have this determine that, like, plants will, through electrical pulses or other things, communicate with other plants about intruders and things, like uh-huh. through roots and stuff. But, yeah, there's this this device. And if you go to, like, YouTube and type in, like, plant wave music, you can find some people, like, apparently there's one where they attach to a cannabis plant um, huh. or, like, a cactus. And you can just listen to kind of the chill music comes off and i think some people even like add their own like piano over top of it and make i, room. I was gonna ask with what we're listening to right now so the the electrical signals are are they playing the piano notes or, or is it the like the wind sounds that we're hearing i am not completely certain because i'm not completely certain i think it's all of this and it's just different way different things they're translating into music, you know, into sure, vi- sure. into sounds. Okay. They claim it's a, a live stream of just the of just the snake plant. So I I think it's supposed to be legit, but the whole thing's a little weird. But I kind of wish I had one just to see what would happen. <laughs> so like, if you go to plantwave.com, you can see the the actual device. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm very curious. What's the actual like translation of? You said it's like electrical impulses, like bio bioelectrical bioelectrical impulses. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious what the translation is, what the the correlation to what that the yeah, signals and, are to what we're. And doing. I didn't dig deep enough into this because I think probably go down a rabbit hole. But <laughs> um, it is kind of interesting, and again, it's like like the music you get on like a spa CD. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> or. Uh, I feel like the ASMR people would really appreciate this. Yeah, well, yeah you, and then you just you rub the plant's leaves and change the music. <laughs> so, like, yeah. um, what was that game on um, DS? Was it uh, Picto, Pictograph? Good for, I, I don't know. I, I can't remember. There was, I remember there was something on... Um, there was like a Smash Brothers stage that was based on it where like there was like leaves, like as the characters would go up and down the leaves, it hit musical notes and stuff. Okay, it was very interesting. Kind of easy chill. listening. Yeah, I, don't, I can't think of what the game is. It's based so, on the... So I had hoped to find like a whole whole like collection of 
YouTube videos we look at, but you can find them here and there. There's not apparently a lot of interest in this sort of stuff, but the people are. <laughs> you are people like, aren't that big into listening to plants? But some people are. Like, you know. Uh-huh. Anyways, it's you can get it for your iPhone, so you can just stream some cool plant music while you're... They have videos about how you can use it in the field. You're taking a hike, and they just hook up whatever plant you're by. But, yeah, it was weird. Listen, was watch one where you clap your hand, and it changes the... It like spikes the music or whatever. Huh. It, anyways, it's it was just a little from the intro web, but I thought it was an a unique little piece of the internet. I'm not sure a lot of people know about. It is, and it's it's not as if this sort of thing couldn't. I don't know if it requires the internet for this to exist, but like the internet makes it much more likely for to do for people to sell this, to or, people to find it and sell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm a little skeptical of the sort of people who like are hardcore about this, <laughs> but. <laughs> That's yeah. just me. I mean, like, so guys, if you if you need to go to sleep, go to plans.fm and just listen to the snake plant all night. It's uh, it's very restful. So there's just my little my little foray into pottery polyphonic. I don't know. <laughs> um, Fun stuff. Uh, I haven't found any uh, interesting interwebs things in a while that I felt would be a good fit. So I'm glad I'm glad you thought of that. Yeah, just all nature. I'm like, I remember someone talking about music and plants. So I found <laughs> that thing. Cool. Well, all right. We're not going to spend too long on interwebs today, but I thought it might be fun to touch back on something we talked on not too long ago, although with the coronavirus changing the world a few months ago seems like uh, forever ago. Forever. <laughs> but, that, of course, that being said, we're going to do a... Previously on. So back in December, we talked about biblical adaptations. Yes. And shortly after that, well, let's see, when was it? I guess it was March. I heard, I'd seen the advertisements on Facebook for this program called The Chosen. See, I saw the ads too. I'm like, I should try that. And I never had a chance to. Yeah, I was like, I wonder what that thing is about. But I was like, eh, I don't know who put this. I'd have to, I'd have to research it before I'd really. So I was like, I was like, eh, I don't know. We'll see. Um, but then Megan Basham did a review for it on the podcast, The World and Everything in It. And I was very thankful for it. And she gave it a glowing review. Had a few qualms with it, but a glowing review made me want to try it. So I, I watched it. If you don't know what The Chosen is, it's basically a new uh, streaming series, set up like a TV series, like ne- like Netflix. Eight episodes or something. It is current. The first season is out. It's eight episodes long, and in Netflix tradition, not necessarily all the episodes are the same length. Okay, yeah. Um, but the company behind it is called VidAngel. Um, okay, I know VidAngel. Vi- yeah. They're the they're the ones that have been been embroiled in like copyrights battles with movie studios because they're trying they try to do services where they cut out like. Uh, objectionable material for movies. Yeah, and I think you can pick which objectionable material you want cut out, and yeah. they'll give you that version. Or yeah, like that. if you want to cut out the nudity or the cussing or what what have you. Yeah, and Hollywood companies don't like this, even though they Vinnie Joel was trying very hard to stick within appropriate copyright codes. But anyway, that's that's a whole different matter. Apparently, now they're also trying to do their own streaming service. Yeah, and uh, one of the products was this the show the the chosen. Um, directed and show run by a director named Dallas Jenkins. Sounds right. If I'm remembering right, I should have looked it up earlier. But it's a story about Jesus and his disciples. And it is very much in the lines of the sort of thing that we were talking about that we would like to see more of in that episode. They listened to us yeah. with a m- remarkable turnaround. Yeah. Like, I think they did it before we, we talked about it. That's not possible. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so, yeah, it's eight episodes and what I'm impressed by how they've they've done it is that it, they very much they've really clearly said uh, yes Dallas Jenkins that's his name um, and he's done videos on they've they have an app for if you just want to check out the chosen and if you're not interested in the whole VidAngel service you can look at the chosen um, there's an app for it on its own and it's free correct currently I don't remember it was free throughout the month of April and there okay. are some episodes that, episodes that are free on YouTube. Okay. Uh, I don't remember. I'm not for certain if it's all free now or not, but it's well worth investing in if you want. I know we watched like a few episodes and then my mom ordered a, a DVD set, I think. So it, they are very beholden to scripture and taking it seriously. Obviously, he is a, it's interesting. VidAngel, I think, is run by, I think it's more of a, a, a Mormon group. I can see that. But Dallas Jenkins himself is an evangelical Christian okay. and he is consulted with 
rabbis and a lot of people, but like he said, bottom line is scripture is scripture. Um, but we're exploring basically a plausible, a possible backstory with all these characters. So it's art. It's art. Yeah. Yes. And, and he's making that very clear. But he's like, our Jesus is not the real Jesus. It's it's an idea. It's an exploration. Yeah. And he's doing, they're doing a remarkable job with it. So in like the first eight, the first eight episodes basically go from, it's it basically you see Jesus calling some of the first disciples, healing Mary Magdalene. Basically it goes from before his very, before his ministry goes public to the last episode of the season is, uh, this spoiler, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> but the, his conversation with the woman at the well. What? I've never heard that story. Okay. <laughs> but uh, the fun thing about it is it really gives a lot more time to explore these various scenarios that we've seen in the Bible. I mean, there's practically an entire episode about the wedding in Cana. You know, in most Jesus movies, that would take like five minutes. Yeah, exactly. So it really gives it time for the story to breathe in a way to, and you kind of can put yourself in there. And there's also, they, they do some interesting backstories about some of the disciples, like Simon, he has this ongoing story. He doesn't meet Jesus till like episode five, like over halfway through the season. Okay. And he has this ongoing struggle thing that he's in over his head about having to pay off tax collectors okay. and things like this. Um, Matthew is a main character in this first season, and they do an interesting. I they play with an interesting idea with him, like what would cause a Jew to become a tax collector. They portray him as possibly having Asperger's syndrome. Huh. The idea being like he's one of these like brainiac. You know, he he can think certain things, but doesn't have the the uh, social skills that another person has. Huh. So it would make sense for someone like him to be forced into using something that was counting yeah. and using his head, and so which makes him even more of an awkward outcast among his own people. Yeah. So that's, it's an interesting idea. The very first episode, they explore Mary Magdalene before she gets cleansed from yeah. demons and, and what that's like. And Nicodemus tries, Nicodemus is another major character that they explore. He's, he's kind of searching, feeling like the Jews have kind of missed something, but he doesn't really understand what. And he tries to exercise Mary and fails and goes back and tells his wife, oh, only only God himself could have done that. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like it did all those things we want to see in more biblical adaptations where you take scripture seriously, but you also make it good drama and, and bring, I don't know if this is too fancy word, sanctified imagination to it. Yeah, I think that's a perfect description for it. Because, yeah, it really does make you connect with the people living there in more powerful ways. And then, by extension, when they encounter Jesus, it gives you a new, fresh appreciation of awe at what is going on in these scenes. And it's nice just to, because I, I actually just read a Breakpoint today hmm. was about The Chosen, saying, hey, you should watch it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh -huh. And he made the point, and it sounds like what you're saying agrees with it, that it also just makes everything very human. Oh, yeah. Which is sometimes the problem with, let's say you go to the church, Bible stories are these sort of stories that seem all very perfect and pure, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it's, it's a little messier than all that. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how it goes forward, because one of the strengths with the series, uh, it, it sounds strange at first, but bear with me. It's actually interesting early in the, the first part of the series that, especially the first episode, Jesus doesn't doesn't come in until the very end of it. Yeah. So you really, you know, it, and it's easier to to swallow these like what if scenarios with all the apostles and stuff. Yeah, it, it's it always feels a little like different when you're seeing Jesus having conversations that you never had him. But, mm -hmm. but because it kind of eases into having Jesus in this this story set, you kind of like okay, I kind of get where it's going. But then it gets a little funny too when you start having conversations that are recorded in more detail in the Bible, yeah. like the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus or the conversation between the woman of the yeah. well and, and the Samaritan woman, um, because you have to follow the same beats from those conversations yeah. as you're recording more detail. But what they, what they tend to do is they give a little bit more, like the sort of like details that a pastor would have to would give okay. in a sermon. They work that into the dialogue to okay. kind of help the... The transitions flow because sometimes if you just read like the story of the woman of the well, for instance, it seems like they change topics suddenly. Yeah, and I think back in the day, the Jewish readers they would or the people at that time they would have understood the like 
how the connecting thoughts. Yeah. But for us, sometimes it's just why are they talking? They're they were talking about this a moment ago. Now they're talking about Jacob as well. Yeah. Like, what's the what's mm-hmm. the connection? And they add little bits to kind of bridge that for modern viewers okay, a little bit more easily. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see how they go forward as they're as a. You know, like I said, they've recruited about Jesus recruited a little over half of his twelve disciples okay. so far. One, it'll be interesting to see what they do with. They don't show every single disciple getting called, yeah. but they show a number of them in this first season. But I'll be curious to see. Like, there's some of the ones that are still outstanding. Will be like Simon the Zealot. Okay, yep, um, yep. that'll be interesting with with Matthew already in the party, and of course. Judas is scary. Yeah. How do you introduce Judas? Yeah, and how, how do you approach him? You know, was he was he always a little off? Or was he do was he all in and then and then change? you know yeah. there's various versions people play. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's very and like with Simon, it's it's pretty cool because like yeah, Simon is in a, a very bad state before he met Jesus. Yeah, kind of desperate, and then Jesus has the throw your net over for for yeah. a catch. Um, also, fun fact: the setting is is really fun, and everyone talks with a Middle Eastern accent. Oh, nice! Which I was like, have I ever actually? I mean, the seat feels authentic. I mean, obviously, they weren't actually speaking English. What? <laughs> but I mean, at least they're not speaking with a British accent or something. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's fun to see like all the characters in authentic, not just authentic setting, but authentic races yeah. and dialogue and all that kind of stuff. Um, it will be more right as they get move farther farther along. I mean, the in some ways the net tightens by the time you get a holy week. There's just so much. I mean, because the gospels do the detail of that last week in much greater detail. I mean, you still, mm-hmm. there's still a lot of room, but there's not. The closer you get to the crucifixion, the less and less room there is to do. Yeah, things exploration. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, and I'll be. Yeah, I'm very curious to see how they'll do. And I think I think they're going to take their time getting there. I think they said they want to do about. I want to say about five or six seasons. I've always, even from high school, I've decided five seasons is a good number for most shows. <laughs> yeah. Five to seven. Yeah. Which again, I I like that. It sounds like they they've got a good long term plan in yeah. mind, which is which is cool, especially since this is all a uh, crowd funded. I heard project. that it was that the first. Is the second season crowdfunded? Do they find some sponsors by the end, by the second? There's, I don't know if they have sponsors, but they're still crowdfunding the second season right now. They funded the first three episodes. I think they're expecting it to be another eight episode season. Nice. So yeah, this is a good time to get into it. I'm planning to donate at, at some point because uh, being crowdfunded, they don't have to worry about network interference. Which is, which as we've learned from the Weekly Hijack, <laughs> yeah, it's not great it, for your show. If, you, if you've been listening to us talk about Crusade, how Crusade just got manhandled by uh, by the network and was all the worse for it. Yeah, yeah, it is a very good thing in this case that it is. It is this is being funded by by the audience by people who want to see this and done people well. who want to see this done very well. And it is is worth. That's one reason why I wanted to. I thought it'd be worth talking about it because it hasn't been that long since we talked about biblical adaptations, and this is a perfect example of what of, we were talking about. Yeah, of doing it, doing it well, doing interesting things with it. So yeah, I highly recommend it. Nice. I actually just today my dad was go, going to download the Vid Angel thing to, to check watch it out. It. Yeah, I, yeah, it's on my list of things. Just haven't managed <laughs> to get there yet. Yeah, yeah. There's always a lot. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it, we because you started watching it. They made it free in April. Because okay. it was Easter yep. month. Yep. Um, I don't know if it's it's free now, but uh, maybe worth it regardless. Yeah, I, yep. I think so. And I remember Megan Bastion pointed out it's not perfect. I remember one of the first episodes feeling like eh, I'm not quite buying this crowd scene. It felt a little artificial. Yeah. I don't know why exactly. I remember she like Megan Bastion didn't like it. At one point, Jesus said to Nicodemus, uh, "What's in your heart?" Which in this context of the conversation, it made sense, but at the same time. It's more of a modern sort of thing. Yeah. Theology is not real strong there. Probably not something Jesus would actually say. <laughs> yeah. So there's there's going to be little little bits like that where you're like, mm, I don't know about this, but, you know, for the most part, they're on the right path, I think. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Good previous, Leon. <laughs> well, I think that's all we got today. I, I think that's all we've got. It might be a little shorter episode, but um, you know what? We're just be- getting back in the swing of things yep. for uh, post-quarantine. But speaking of the Weekly Hijack... Yes. That will be wrapping up. Well, almost by the time this comes out, probably. Very soon, yeah. I think, if I remember right, we have enough episodes that could take us into the beginning of June. Okay. So if you've been meaning to catch up on that, do so, because the Weekly Hijack will unfortunately be going on a little bit of a hiatus. To be fair, I think we had kind of been thinking about 
putting Weekly Hijack on hold over the course of the summer, but quarantine necessitated that (laughs) because we did not get together at all during quarantine time, and I don't know when we will start that up again. Eventually, the, the plan is, as long as the world doesn't end, to <laughs> when we to restart weekly hijack maybe September or something, okay. mm-hmm. and we'd be getting into Lost again. Lost. Uh, we started with it, and now we shall end. Well, we we'll shall. Con- we shall. We have to it. go back. <laughs> because we did the first two seasons. Too bad we did stop at the end of season three and then say we had to go back. I know it would have been perfect, but uh, that's okay. We've got seasons three through six to fun stuff to to tackle. So that should be. It'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be very different, I feel like, when we get back to that than when we did it before, because there's more time in between Yes, between when loss was a thing. and We don't remember all the details, and we won't be quite as invested in certain... In certain things. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 went back, <laughs> <laughs> I went back and listened to some of our weekly hijacks, some of the early, and it's like, we were constantly like talking back with like the ramifications, like it's the season six stuff. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how much of that stuff comes back to mind. Yeah. Anyway, be looking forward to that. That's down the road. In the meantime, we are finishing up Crusade, this uh, little forgotten bit of Babylon 5 history. Interesting history. Interesting history, indeed. Also, uh, if you would like to make a comment on uh, anything here, we'd love to. You can come to our website at derailtrainsofthought.blogspot.com, or we'd love you to email us an audio clip that we could share on the show at uh, derailtrains at gmail.com. Yes. We would love to hear that. Here, let's hear about. And last time we asked you for uh, submissions about your bookshelf. I think I know someone who said that she was going to do that. We'll still take them. We'll still take them. Yes, the, the door is not closed to that, or to any, really any of our past podcasts. Although you may have to like wave and get our attention, we tend to forget about the email sometimes. So Which, hear, anyway, the email is derailtrains at gmail Let's give them a question to answer if they call in here, Tim. Okay. So how about? What is your favorite nature scene in a book or movie? Yes, in any story. Any story, yeah. Comic, audio drama, whatever. Yeah. Play. Play. Um, <laughs> audio drama, that would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, what is one scene that really stuck with you just about nature? Yeah, I would love to hear it. Meanwhile, Nick, um, you have a soundtrack to wrap us up with? Yes. Okay, this is from Echo, The Tides of Time, which is about a dolphin. You play as a dolphin. Yeah, in this game? you are actually the dolphin. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, I've I played it once ages ago. Don't remember much, but there's a lot of exploration going through the ocean. Now I think there's also um, like aliens and time travel and stuff. <laughs> what game um, system was this on? Uh, I believe it was Sega Genesis. Okay. That would um, if, it's been a long time since I I played it once. But anyways, this song called "Another Seascape," remixed by Halsey, I believe is how you say. It, though it looks like Hulk. I have to. Okay, sorry, I'm distracted, but I have to ask. So you, you played this on Sega Genesis. How in the world did you play this Echo and not play Sonic the Hedgehog? I probably play. I play a little bit of Sonic. Oh, okay. I was at my friend's house, play a little Sonic, but another friend's house, we played some Echo. Okay, all right. So, but I, like, I just remember saying you didn't really grow up with it much. I was like, no, I really didn't. I just I remember because it's not every day you play a game with the dolphin as the main <laughs> character. Okay. Fair, fair point. Fair point. <laughs> But it seems like seascape and dolphins are very naturey, and this song is it has a nice chill feel to it as well. So I hope you enjoy another seascape. Awesome. Well, I think we will take our time uh, exploring the secret garden a little bit, just soaking the sun and yeah, enjoying the all the flora and fauna that these kids have put a lot of a lot of hard work into uh, renovating this place. Yeah. It looks like. And hope you take some time during your quarantine, if you're still doing it. Maybe you're been set partially free like us. Uh, but either way, the state parks are still open. Go out there, enjoy nature, and uh, see what new stories you can uh, come across. Imagine, yes. Until next time, this is Tim. This is Nick. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.